So I don't know if anyone does this. Um, I know one other guy that does. But I'll be at home sometimes, and I did it a lot a couple years ago. And it'll be nighttime, and then my family will come home, and all the lights will be off in the house, and I'll hide somewhere. <laughs> Does anyone do that? <laughs> and then whoever is first through the door, you jump out at them. Yeah. It's like, it's what I teach every new dad. This is what you have to do. <laughs> this is new dad class. Scare your family when they come home late at night. So I, I tempered off, and here's why. We, my wife and I went out to eat one time, and we sat next to Rowdy and Janice Morgan. And for some reason, we got on this conversation. And Rowdy's like, man, we've been, I do that too. And he's got two boys, two big, like, strapping boys. And he's like, so, he goes, I got to tell you this story. He goes, one night I come home, and it's late, and so I go into the bathroom, and I'm brushing my teeth. And he goes, when I brush my teeth... I brushed my teeth. Like, I just get in there and just, Arr! so he's just Arr! brushing his teeth away. And he's got just a little lamp on. His son had hid in the shower behind the shower curtain. Yes. So at just the right time, he went straight to the shower curtain, took it with him and wrapped up his dad, right? So you can just imagine the adrenaline jolt that happened. Well, what happened was he was vigorously brushing his teeth and he shoved that toothbrush up between the lining between his jaw and his nose and made it all the way up into his nasal cavity. And he's a tough guy. He said, I tried to pull it out, but all the bristles were pointed down, you know? So it was like, it was like one of those Chinese finger drills. He's just like, ah, oh, ah, oh. So emergency room. So I made a note to self. Don't scare people in the bathroom. Anywhere else, it's fine, just not the bathroom. What does this have to do with Hebrews 8? <laughs> Hebrews 8 is this. Step out of the shadow. Step out of the shadow. You have these believers that had gone back into the old systems. They'd gone back into the shadowlands. They'd gone back into things that were just pictures, but not reality ideas that had been fulfilled already. So it was get out of them, right? The idea that God was this scary being on top of Mount Sinai with thunder and lightning. No, the son had come, the express image of the father, chapter one begins, to show us exactly what God's like. We don't have to run and hide like Adam and Eve did from the face of God. We don't have to do that. So last week we looked at chapter seven, which was Jesus is a better priesthood than the one you've been trying to go back to. He's in the order of Melchizedek, this priesthood that stretched back to the very first priest seen in the Bible in Genesis chapter 14. And so the question on people's mind would be this, okay, if we get rid of that system with the temple or the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the rules, what replaces it? Right? You can't have a vacuum. What's the new system? What's the new way? Where do we go now? And new is scary, isn't it? New things are scary. So this is kind of scary. So what the author's going to do is he's going to wrap up Jesus' high priest, and then he's going to get to the point of the last eight chapters. And it's a brilliant point. It's this is what God has been after. It's called the new covenant. It's amazing. So let's jump in. First, 
a couple more kind of housekeeping things about Jesus as priest. Verse one. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Jesus has a position no high priest had. Number one, he's seated. If you've studied the tabernacle, if you studied the temple that comes after it, and you look at all the furniture, guess what was not in the tabernacle or in the temple? A chair. The high priest went to work, right? You did not get to sit down. Could you imagine going to the office and there's no chairs at the office next time you go? What would that mean? You're not falling asleep at your desk anymore. Meetings would be a lot shorter. I think it actually might be a good idea. You're gonna do everything quicker. Elijah, my son, I have a saying with him when we're doing a job together and it's this, you don't sit down until the job's done. You just don't. So when, you're, when you get a job with a boss, a different boss, don't sit down until the job is done then you could sit down, right? So the priests in the Old Testament didn't get to sit down. You know why? The job was never done. There's gonna be more sin and more sacrifices and more work to do. The job was never done. Well, Jesus took a seat. He's the one that's able to say, come to me now, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest because I found it. He's the one that Isaiah the prophet prophesied about in chapter 26, if you'll keep your mind stayed on him, you'll be put in perfect peace in this shalom. Why? Because he's seated. And then who's he seated next to? The majesty, the father. There is one mediator between man and God. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the father but by me. He is the only route to majesty. Not Joseph Smith, not the Virgin Mary, not some new whatever, Bhagwan Rajneesh, none of them, not the saints. There's one seated next to majesty, it's Jesus. So his position is, he's at rest because it's finished. And he is the only route to the Father. And verse two, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. This is telling us something. That there was this earthly tabernacle that Moses made and Moses set up and was all this stuff and there was the temple that Solomon built. But there's also a tabernacle in heaven that God made. Why is there a tabernacle in heaven? Because the tabernacle Here's, what, here's all the tabernacle was. It was a space where heaven and earth overlapped, where the two could meet, where the veil between heaven and earth grew thin for a moment, and God and man could commune together the way that we're designed to, that sin had interfered with. So, so that's all it is. And it was this God space, and in this God space was an opportunity to worship. And that's what heaven's going to be. Read Revelation. Heaven is going to be worship, worship of God. Matt, that sounds boring to me. Okay. Have you ever been 
caught up in a moment that was much bigger than you. Maybe you're at the 50-yard line and there was a pick six right in front of you, right? You never forget that, the thrill, the, feel, the feeling. Maybe it's you've been hiking the Pacific Crest Trail and you've been, you know, it's hot and nasty and all of a sudden you bust out into this vista and you're just, it's breathtaking. You never forget that. You know what that is? That's worship of something greater than you. Multiply that by a billion when we're in the presence of God. That feeling, that awe, that majesty, that, oh, I can't believe that. Multiply that by a billion when we're in his presence. All these things are just appetizers of when we get in God's presence. So people ask me like, Matt, what do you think heaven will be like? I tell them one thing, more. Whatever you think it could be, it's going to be more. Our minds will be blown, right? So maybe it was Paul that made it to heaven, right? He has this kind of vision. He doesn't say it was him. He kind of says it was him, but it, it, you know, there's some debate about that. But whoever the guy was that made it to heaven, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he goes, I couldn't even talk about it. I couldn't put words to it. It was beyond the English language. It will blow our minds. It's more. It's sunset to a blind man who gets his sight. Blown mind, okay? So now the point of all this is still to worry, okay, what's gonna replace the tabernacle? So here's one of his points. For every priest, verse three, is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifice. Thus, it is necessary that the priests also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. He could be a priest on earth because he wasn't in the line of Aaron. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. So his whole point on this is this. You guys love this tabernacle. You love this temple. It's Herod's temple. You think it's awesome. Listen, it's a copy. What's better, an original or a copy? Right? Like there's been famous, famous copies made. Do you know that it's like the only picture we thought we had of Shakespeare? It's called the flower portrait of Shakespeare. It's got, he's got that big kind of white thing around. It's really the only picture we have of Shakespeare. Do you know that's not a picture of Shakespeare? It dates to the mid 1800s. It's a forgery. It's one of the biggest forgeries ever because we assumed it was. And it, was, it wasn't until we could date the yellow in it that we, that, that yellow, there was a, there's chromium in it, which didn't appear until the 1800s, right? How about, you guys seen the picture of the scream? by Ed, Edward Munch, right? It's the one he's like, oh, right? I thought about getting a picture of it, but I thought, oh, that'll do it right there. Did, oh. <laughs> okay, so 2012, that portrait painting sold for $119.9 million, the highest amount ever for a painting. But did you know it was a copy? that Edward 
Munch made four copies of that painting, different ones. The original, he painted on a piece of cardboard because he was so poor. No one knows how much the original is worth. The one that dates back to like 1895. No one knows how much it's worth. Estimates are half billion dollars. Why? Because it's the original. A copy sells for 119.9 million. What's the original gonna sell for? That's his argument. You guys are all caught up in this veneration of this earthly temple and this earthly tabernacle. It's a copy. Calm down. Calm down. Because there's something a lot better coming. And here it is, verse 7. For if the first covenant, and this is a big argument of the author of Hebrews, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, and this is quoting now the Old Testament, the book of Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Guys, you love this system. You love the soccer. You love that. But why does the Old Testament, the book you venerate, why does it say there's coming something else? If that one was good, why would God say there's coming something new? So the big question that they have is they have this giant system based on the Old Testament. You've got all these rules. These rules tell you how to build a house. They tell you if you dig a hole, make sure and protect people from falling in it. They tell you what kind of clothing to wear. They tell you what kind of food to eat. They tell you what to do if you have a court case against somebody. They tell you what to do if your bull accidentally kills somebody, right? I mean, there are laws that cover everything a person could do. And yet, there's fault in it. So what was wrong with this system? What was wrong with it? Let me read for you just a little bit of this. If you've never read Deuteronomy when it begins to talk about the ratification of the first covenant, it's interesting reading. I'll read just a bit of it. There's a ton to read, but Deuteronomy 27, verse 11. That day, Moses charged the people saying, when you've crossed over the Jordan, there you shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And the Levite shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice, cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to God, a thing made by the hands of craftsmen and set up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, amen. Verse 16, Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or mother, and all the people shall say amen. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say amen. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road, and all the people shall say Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to a sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, and all the people shall say Okay, this goes on and on and on and on. Okay? And then if you skip to chapter 28, then it's Blessings, right? 
If you will obey the voice of Yahweh your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you, then Yahweh your God will set you high above all the nations of earth and all the blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. But verse 15, if you will not obey the voice of Yahweh your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you. This is one of the most interesting readings ever. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall be shall it be when you go out and cursed shall it be when you come in. I mean, it just goes on and on for 66 chapters, okay? That's the covenant. These guys agreed. Their amen was, we agree to this covenant. God, you've told us these are the rules. This is how this thing works. We are amen in it. We're saying, okay. The whole system was conditional. If you will do this, God will do this, right? Conditioned. If you do the good stuff, God's going to bless you. If you do the bad stuff, you're cursed. It's a conditional covenant. Now, if they blew it, there was a escape valve, right? It was called the sacrificial system. You could take a lamb, you could take a bull, you could march down to the priest, you could confess your sins, and that priest would do a sacrifice, and you would be forgiven of that sin. Can you imagine how hard that system would be? Do you think your neighbors would be paying attention to how often you took one of your lambs or bulls? Like, oh man, tough day at home for Matt. Kids must be home today. Man, he has been making trip after trip. Think about how expensive that would be. What's a bull cost? Right, today, 500 bucks? I don't know what a bull costs. It's gotta be money. Man, this is an expensive, hard system. So why was that system set up chapter after chapter, law after law, clearly, clearly spelled out by God what he wanted? What was wrong with it? Were there laws that were bad that needed to be repealed? Did God kind of make some mistakes? Ah, man, that was a little bit harsh. No, verse nine. It says, it's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt for they did not continue in my covenant. That's the problem. Law was good. God was good. Communication was perfect. God clearly set it out, put them on mountains, made sure that, hey, you guys are really understanding the gravity of this covenant. The problem was they didn't stay in the covenant. So if you think this through, you start to ask yourself, what did Jesus actually save me from? Did Jesus save me from my sins? Yes. And no, <laughs> right? What did Jesus save me from? Because sins could be taken care of by the law. There was provision in the law to take care of sin. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 19 says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. 
Right? If you just did this system that God clearly laid out, gave them it, communicated it multiple times, if you did that system, hey, sin t- your sins are taken care of. Right? So that was taken care of. Maybe it's, well, God save us from a sin nature. Then what was wrong with Adam and Eve? Why did they blow it? They didn't have sin nature. And they still blow it. Okay, listen, you can go on and on. What did Jesus save us from? Jesus saved me from me. My inability to be a covenant keeper. That's what he saved me from. Jesus saved me from, the, from my promises that I never keep, all this stuff, right? So Francis Schaeffer has one of the most brilliant arguments on this. He says, let's just imagine that there is no law, okay? But every person, when they are born, around their neck is hung this recorder. And this recorder only turns on when you tell the people how they're supposed to live. When you tell your son, hey, pick up your towel when you take a shower. Hey, clean up. Hey, replace the toilet paper when you're done with all the toilet paper, right? It records all of your laws. That's all it does. Every time you tell somebody else how they're supposed to live, it records. At the end of days, you stand before God and God just says, play the tape. Does anyone keep their own rules? Nobody. Our own words would condemn us because we can't keep our own promises. We, we, we make promises all the time to God. Like we want God to keep uh, a record of our promises, not actually how we work things out because we do terrible at it. Jesus came to save me from my inability to keep covenant and to walk the way that I want to walk. That's ultimately what Jesus came to save me from. He came to save me from me. That the law was never given to make men righteous. The law was given to show you you're not. That's the whole purpose of the law. Read Galatians chapter three. It's a schoolmaster to drive you to Jesus Christ. Ah, I cannot do this thing. I cannot be holy enough. I cannot keep my promises the way I want to. I cannot walk the way I want to. I can't stop losing my temper. Whatever it is, right? I need to be saved. So this is the system that the Hebrew author is saying, why are you going back to this, right? You never go back to Moses to accomplish what only grace can. And what's tragic to me is this. So often, believers go back to Moses and start putting laws on themselves and start trying to live a law life. And all it does is cause them to wander in the wilderness year after year after year. When Jesus is saying, I'll bring you into the promised land. I'll give you the power of my spirit. I'll give you an ability to have a new heart as we'll get to and a new mind. That's it. Well, Matt, if God knew that, that the law wouldn't work, Why did he wait 1,500 years before Jesus? Here's what I think. If you're a parent, there's this stage where you dress your kids, you dress your kids right, and then about two and a half, three years old, they want to dress themselves, right? And if you try to help your child at that point, what do they say to you? I know your child is probably like, yes, father, please button my shirt and tie my shoes. Not my kids. They're like, don't help me. I got it. So when that happened, I would leave, go downstairs and grab a book and just listen. Listen to the anguish upstairs. Oh, 
right? I hate these shoes. These are stupid shoes. Thump, thump, right? Until finally they gave up and they're like, Dad, can you help me? Or one time the best was, and, and she was by far my strongest willed one. She just threw a jacket over her whole mess and said, let's go. I'm like, listen, it's July. You can have that jacket on. I don't care. You're not gonna help me, Dad. I think God had to wait until we just got exasperated. I think sometimes God waits even today till we just get exasperated and we say, I cannot do it. And God says, okay. Because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Come, humble yourself. I'll, I'll take over. That's what he wants, okay? So that's why. So the best news of, at all is, is this right here. Listen to these verses. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. If you're an underliner, that's when you underline. That is the new covenant. That's been the drive of this author to get to. He's got to get, he had to work through some stuff with these believers who are going back to shadows and going back to this other stuff. And finally he gets to it. This is the way it's supposed to be. The law was external, written on a mountain, written on tablets. It was external. This, this new covenant is internal. I call it the divine infection, that you get infected with this, and it changes you. Have you guys heard of Toxoplasma Gandhi? Google it, just not now. It's unreal. It is a, they're not sure exactly what it is, but it gets into a cat. That's its desired host. If Toxoplasma Gandhi gets into a rat, it fiddles with that rat's brain. And whenever that rat smells cat urine, it stops and just stays there, right? Waiting for the cat to come back and then the rat to get eaten and then Toxoplasma Gandhi gets into its preferred host. How crazy is that? How powerful is that? That's nutty, right? Here's what's even more nutty. 30 to 50% of Americans have Toxoplasma Gandhi. That means half of us in here. And here's what they found. When you have Toxoplasma Gandhi in you, men are two and a half times more likely to get into automobile accidents because you drive more recklessly. Why? It's trying to escape from your body and get back into a cat, right? <laughs> Women, I'm, I'm serious, man. This one is like, it's, it's as weird as it gets. Women are more intelligent and less guilty. I don't know what that means. But that's the way it is. I told my two daughters this, my Carissa and Bella, and Bella was like, yuck, and Carissa was like, 
well, I'm gonna be crazy smart then because I love cats. <laughs> and here's what's amazing to me. We all know a crazy cat lady, right? Yeah, Toxoplasma Gandhi. Feed us. When you and I believe in Jesus Christ, what happens is we get infected in a really, really good way. It changes us. Look at number one, I'm gonna write my laws on their mind. It affects your thinking. And you can go to a ton of verses. 1 Corinthians 2, 16. When you believe you are given the mind of Christ, that you don't think like you used to anymore, you have the ability to think like Jesus, think Jesus' thoughts now. How awesome is that? It affects your mind. But you know what? Even though we wanna be factual people and knowledge people, knowledge is not enough, is it? Have you ever known the right thing to do, but not done it? Anyone. If knowledge was it, nobody would smoke cigarettes, right? There has been a campaign driven at smoking since the early 80s, and yet every day, 4,000 teenagers in America smoke for the first time. Why? Because knowledge is limited. Something else has to happen. There's this desire in us. Our wanter has to change, which is number two. They shall, I'm gonna write the law in their minds and write it on their hearts. It's also gonna change your wanter. The core of your desires begin to change. And I've said this before. I'm a new covenant Christian, which means this, that your deepest desires are transformed by the power of God the moment you believe. You are tempted on the surface level all the time by Satan. He tries to give you the quick way out. But if we will stop in that moment and think deeply and pray and maybe call a friend who's a believer, if you'll do that, you'll make good decisions. But if in the moment he gets you, oh man, it's easier. Oh, you want a relationship? It's easier at the bar. What you really want is a lifelong commitment with a spouse that's beautiful and brilliant, but he'll tempt you with the easy way. But if you will in the moment stop and think deeply about who you are and whose you are, get help through prayer and the saints, you'll make good decisions because we're new covenant Christians. It's written on our hearts. I saw this transform somebody once. So I grew up with my brother-in-law, Clyde, and um, he was a wild man when he was younger. Gets saved, and then he had this idea, I'm going to be a missionary in Brazil. I have never seen somebody more dedicated to becoming a missionary than my brother-in-law. He started eating Brazilian food. He started taking Portuguese lessons. He started hanging out with any, like if he thought someone was Brazilian, he's gonna get to know you and talk to you and learn the culture, just brilliant. And then he goes down and becomes a missionary for 10 years in Brazil. Just transformed him. Like this, his wanter was changed from what it was as a young man with me when we were not the best to I wanna be a missionary. I wanna share Jesus with people. Like he was so changed. He came back for furlough one time and we are chopping some wood for somebody. It was this pine, and we are chopping it. And there was, if you've ever chopped pine, sometimes these big, they're called wood borers, get in them. 
They're about like an inch and a half long. They're white. They're nasty with a black head on them. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to impress Clyde. I'm going to eat one of those. Yeah. So I'm like, well, oh, hey, I said, hey, Clyde, look at these. And so I threw it in my mouth and I chomp it down. And Clyde was like, oh, I bet those are a great source of protein. He grabs one. He eats it. He's like, man, those are good. He eats another one. I had spit mine out, right? But he's like, yeah, he's just full missionary, man. Like never challenge a missionary to a bug eating contest. They'll like find a new source of protein and they'll like it and you'll get sick. What happened to him from what I knew as a kid to this missionary who gave his life for a decade in Brazil? His mantra was changed. His mantra was. It's the power of God. Your minds change. You think differently, but your desires are changed as well. And then here are the symptoms of this. You, you belong. God says this, unconditional, right? Remember what I read in Deuteronomy? If then, if then, this is what God says, unconditional, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Is that conditional? Doesn't sound conditional at all to me. Sounds like God is saying, this is the way it will be. I will be their God and they will be my people. You belong. Do you know the power of belonging? Like I have this saying now, it's not hard to draw a crowd. Like 40,000 people will go to an OSU Beaver game, right? Why are they going to an OSU Beaver game? Because it's a winning program? Because <laughs> we're going to win the game? Nope. Why are they going? Why do I go? Because I'm a beaver. That's it. I go, not because they're winning, not what? Because I'm a beaver. I belong to them. And there's such a power in that. It doesn't matter if we win or not. I'm a beaver. And I'll always be a beaver. And I'll always root for him. And it does not matter. I'm not one of those loser bandwagon fans that change their team every year. I stick with my loser team. I'm a man of integrity. Because <laughs> I belong. When you understand the power of belonging, transforms you. God says, you are my people. You belong to me. This is how Paul puts it. It's Galatians. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his sons, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Your sons and daughters of the king, you belong to him. You know him now, verse 11. And they shall not teach each one of his neighbor and each one of his brothers saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Religions are pyramids, right? You can kind of get up higher and higher and higher in the pyramid system. 
So Scientology, it's 50 bucks for your first course, 100 bucks for the next course. They say if you wanna be a full-fledged Scientologist, it's gonna cost you 100 grand because everything costs more and more and more to step your way up, pyramid. That's not us. There's no levels. It's a person. And you meet that person day one, and it's Jesus. Back in Galatians 1, Paul just says this, who's bewitched you? Who tricked you? Who tricked you back into this junk? Are you kidding me? It's Jesus. Stick with him. You know him. You get mercy. 4 verse 12, I will be merciful toward their iniquities. How do you view God? To me, I have eight big questions that every believer needs to answer. One of them is, who is God to you? Is God the Godfather that if you misstep and make a bad move, you're going to wake up with a severed horse head in bed with you? Right? The Godfather? Or is he Father God looking to be merciful to you? Listen to Psalm 103. One of my favorites. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And you know this, you can go east or west forever. You can't go north or south forever. You hit the North Pole and any direction you go is south. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so Yahweh shows compassion to those that fear him, for he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. What a great psalm. God knows me. And he's still my dad. He knows I'm dirty. He knows I've blown it. And he's still my dad. Mercy. I think we put more pressure on ourselves than God does. He knows our frame. He knows what we are. We get so disappointed in ourselves and so dejected, tired of our own selves. And God's like, I'm not tired of you. I put that sin as far as the east is from the west from you, Matt. I know your frame. And then he forgives us. And their iniquities, I will remember their sins no more. God the Father rejoices in our victories and forgets our failures. My best analogy is this. I've had five kids. I've watched every one of my children learn to walk. You know what I've never done to my kids? I've never looked at one of my kids, Carissa, Bella, Gabrielle, Elijah, Myron. I've never looked at them and said, all right, it's been nine months. You've watched your mom walk. She's good at it. You've watched me walk. I'm super good at it. What is wrong with you? right? For a doggy treat, the dog will walk on his back legs. Come on, get with it. You're a heavenly, represent. I've never done that. Instead, yeah, good. I'd be a monster. Instead, when one of my kids takes one step or two steps and then falls down, what do I rejoice over? I'm like, well, that was only two steps. What's wrong with you? No, I'm throwing a party. You took two steps. Yeah, right? 
If I did social media, it'd be on social media. Like, yes! That's what good dads do. That's what God the Father does. He remembers our victories, stores them up for us, and forgives us and cleanses us from our failures. He remembers our iniquities no more. How brilliant is this? And so he just ends in this way. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. I have that word obsolete underlined. There are certain factions of Christianity that want to go back to the law. And I always say, it's obsolete, man. It's obsolete. Have some bacon. Eat some shrimp. It's obsolete. You can. He made it obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Don't hold on to something that's vanishing away. Why would you go back to the telegraph? Anybody trying to revive the telegraph right now? You know, text messaging is just too fast. I think there's a space for the telegraph right now. Fax machine, and we're like, dude, fax machine. So good. I gotta get a fax. Dial up? No, right? Anyone wanna go back to the Medford Nickel? Remember that? If you wanna buy something, you had to wait till Thursday morning and the Medford Nickel would come out and you'd be like, look through it and see if there's anything for sale. Or the Daily Courier classifies, as great as those are, I think Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace have upped the level, right? I don't wanna go back to those things. That's this, that stuff is obsolete. Don't go back. Don't go back. Stick with the new covenant. Stick with praying in the moment to Jesus and saying, God, help me, empower me by your spirit. I wanna be a new covenant Christian. I've got this temptation, I've got this problem, and I know I can come boldly right now before your throne of grace and obtain help in my time of need. I don't need to turn to anything else. I can turn to you because you're the source of life and power. That's Hebrews' point. And so Jesus tonight, we are grateful for the unconditionalness of the gospel. Because if I could mess it up, I would. And so you have based grace, mercy, forgiveness, belonging, justification upon yourself. And you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And for that, we're thankful. We're thankful that you have declared you will be our God and we shall be your people, unconditional, that we've been adopted into your family, married into your family, anointed into your family, and that you have a hold of us and no one can rip us out of your hand. So I pray that we would walk out of this room tonight with full assurance of our salvation. That anchor of hope that we would know, that we know that we know we're sons and daughters of King Jesus. And I ask this in your name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.